Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Check one, check two. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. <laughs> I'll continue. We here report the first large-scale study oh, that's comparing the prevalence of absolute pitch in two normal populations by means of... This is Professor Diana Deutsch. Diana Deutsch. Well, yeah, I'm going to turn down my headphone level. In fact. And I'm a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego. Can you still hear me, Diana? Okay. Hello? Diana studies sound. How humans perceive sound. She's a scientist. She has a lab. But every so often, she will also release CDs. Right. These uh, CDs of audio demonstrations that she uses in her research, and that's why we called. Because it was in the production of her second CD that she stumbled onto the weirdest phenomenon. Well, when you do post-production, as as you know, of, of, of speech, you loop things, loop things, loop things, so that you can zero in on P's, P's that sound too loud, you need to unpop, or S's that sound too sharp and so on. So you put things on loops in order to fine-tune the way the speech sounds. So I had this particular phrase on a loop and forgot about it. What phrase was this? It's a phrase that occurs at the beginning of the CD in which I say, the sounds as they appear to you are not, not only, only different, different from those, those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. seem quite impossible. Now... I had sometimes behaved so strangely looped. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely, sometimes behave so strangely. Just those few words. Sometimes behave so strangely. And forgot about it. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. So here's what happened. Diana leaves her studio. She closes the door, goes into the kitchen to make some tea. All the while, this loop is whirring away in the background. As she's sipping her tea, she thinks, Is someone singing? Who's singing? I heard what sounded like song in the background. She realized, wait a second. That's not singing. That's me. Talking. That very phrase. So strangely. But at this point, sometimes behave so strangely. appeared to be sung rather than spoken. So strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. This is sometimes behave so strangely. Right? <laughs> yeah. You still hear the words, but the, they're sung words rather than spoken words. It's weird. Like, it just switches at a certain point. Three or four repetitions in. Right. It's going, it's going, and then pow! becomes music and then now now none of us can get it out of our head like the whole office is like sometimes behave so strangely (laughs) sometimes behave so strangely and you know what if you do this demo and then you go back to the original sentence it sounds like you know speech to begin with and when you come to that very phrase i seem to be bursting into song the sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. I have to say this can continue for months and months. It's sort of, sort of like your brain gets altered for that particular phrase and, and, it, and it continues to sound so like singing so for a very, very long time. So All right, so here we have just one small indication that music is, well, it behaves very strangely. 
I mean, think about this. We started with some basic speech, repeated it a few times. Somewhere along the way, it leapt into song. How did it change like that? And if that's all it takes to turn something into music, then what exactly is music, really? This is Radio Lab. Today's program is about answering that question. Or trying to, in any case. I'm Jad Abumrad. Here with me is Robert Crawwich, my partner in crime. It's a little hard to get out of your head. I know. It is really I weird. I know, I know. Yeah. Okay, so this hour, what are we doing? We are going to try. And we will probably fail. Well, yes, we will fail. But we will make an earnest effort to try to find the ingredients of music, both its basis in language, its basis in physics, its basis in your brain. We'll look everywhere we can, software, trying to find out what music is made of and why it touches us so intimately. And touches us sometimes not in a good way. If you've ever had this experience of going to a concert, hearing some music, and it just made you upset for some reason, like irrationally upset, almost like you wanted to hurt someone. If that rings a bell, there's a segment later in the show you will not want to miss. This is Radio Lab. Stick around. Sometimes they behave so strangely. All right, shall we start? Sure. Well, first, thanks to the LaGuardia High School Chorus and Robert Apostle. They were the voices you just heard. We'll hear more of them later. So let's explore a little bit more closely this connection between language and music. Yes. You think of them as separate. The thing is, they're really closely related, says neuroscientist Mark Jude Trammell. When we speak, we sing. You know how to use the pitch of your voice to convey emotion and meaning. Like, um, I went to the store just because I raised the pitch, the note, if you will. Mm. You interpret that as an interrogative. A monotonic speech, you know, talking at the same rate and rhythm in the same pitch and loudness. I mean, that is not how humans talk. But humans talk in all kinds of different ways, in different languages. Each language has its own musical personality. German is different than French, is different than Swahili. And if you look at those differences closely, there are all kinds of things we can learn about music. Take Diana Deutsch. Okay. She's recently been looking at tone languages, just published her results, and the results are startling. Diana, before we start, what exactly is a tone language? Okay. In tone languages, words take on different meanings depending upon the tones in which they are enunciated. For example, Mandarin has four tones, and the word ma in Mandarin means mother in the first tone, hemp in the second tone, horse in the third tone, and a reproach in the fourth tone. Could you the say same, them? W- would you like me to? Yeah, could you, could say, you oh, demonstrate? I, I, thought you were, I thought you were... Well, I, you know, I have them on CD, but I'd rather hear you say them. Well, um, okay, so excuse my bad pronunciation, but I'll try. <laughs> Ma means mother. Ma means hemp. Ma means horse. And ma is a reproach. Huh. So conceivably, if you screwed up the tones, you could call your mom a horse. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. In fact, there are quite a lot of jokes where Westerners who don't speak the tones right say terrible things. <laughs> you have to be very careful. See, this is a basic difference. In English, we don't really worry about pitch. We can say our words up here, or down here, or glissade up, or bend it down. And it's all the same. Not so with tone languages. In any case, this is where it gets interesting. One day, Diana is working with some Mandarin speakers, and she notices something. There were these words. These words that they would say where they would all hit precisely the same note with their voices not just close to one another either. Exactly, precisely, and consistently the same pitch. Even on different days. In fact, would you like me to play for you one person reciting a list of 12 Mandarin tones on two different days? Yeah, definitely. Um, first you have the first word spoken on day one, followed by the same word spoken on day two. Then you have the second word spoken on day one, followed by the same word spoken day two, and so on. And that way, you can see the consistency. It's going to appear as though the words are being repeated immediately. But in fact, the repetitions occur on entirely different days. So each of those word pairs came out of the mouth of one person Separated by, like, 24 hours? Oh, much more than that. Um, something like a week. Really? And it wow. was a remarkable consistency. Jing. Jing. Well, that would be like us saying the word mom, always at this note right here. Mom, mom, mom. Well, I concluded that basically this was a form of perfect pitch. Huh. I, I've never quite understood what perfect pitch is, to be honest. You, you don't know what that is? No. Should I? I mean, I know I should. Well, it's... it's Just whisper I mean, it to me. As a musician growing up, uh, perfect pitch is like the... It's like the thing. It's like the thing you wish you had that none of us have. Basically, it's like having a tuning fork in your brain. Here, I'll, I'll give you an analogy. Yeah? Okay, you see this uh, coffee cup I'm holding? Yeah. Uh, what color is it? Brown. And you knew that, how? Through my eyes. Right. You didn't need me to put this brown coffee cup next to my uh, blue jeans. No, I didn't. In I order to see the brown. I mean, it's absolute brown. It's absolute brown. Perfect pitch people have that with pitch. They hear a pitch, they know exactly what note it is. The rest of us have to run to the piano. So if they hear a ding from an elevator, can they name the note? Is yeah, that that's exactly it. Anything with a pitch, like a horn honk, they could tell you that horn is an F, or those church bells... They're alternating between B-flat and B. And if the faucet were dripping, they could say that faucet is dripping in a D-sharp. They don't even have to think about it. They just know. It used to be that the note names would jump out at me. Diana Deutsch is actually one of these lucky people. To, to the extent that it would even be a nuisance. And why, why is that good? It, well, it's really rare. It only happens like once every 10,000 people here in America or Europe. Yeah, but and, so does uh, wait, t- turning your tongue yeah, into yeah, a hold U. Up, hold up. And of the people who have it, yeah. well, let's see, how, many, how should I say this? If you look in your music history textbooks, you will see that every famous composer, like the really big ones, like you know, Mozart, and Bach, and Beethoven, 
They all had it. Oh, really? Mendelssohn, the list goes on and on. So if you have perfect pitch, on some level, you are closer to them. You've got the gift. Anyhow, let's get back to Diana Deutsch. Okay. Okay, let's talk about your latest experiment. That's the one I'm really interested in. Okay, so you compared Chinese kids to American kids to see who has perfect pitch more. So uh, explain how this works. You had a a group of Chinese music students, a group of American music students at the Eastman School of Music here in New York. You played them a bunch of notes, I imagine, in a room and asked them to guess what those notes were. Right. Now, how did that work exactly? Well, the test consisted of piano tones, which began on the C below middle C, that's this note, and extended up three octaves all the way up to the that note. That's a big range. Yeah, 36 notes. Can you demonstrate? Sure, yes. Here are six tones. Such as were given in the test. So you would have played those notes to both sets of kids and asked them to name the notes without going to the piano. What were the notes really? What these notes were, D, E, G sharp, C sharp, D sharp, and G. Um, What were the results? Well, it turns out the Chinese group far outperformed the Eastman group. Of those students who started musical training at ages four and five, 74% of the Chinese group show perfect pitch, but 14% of the U.S. non-terminal. Wow, 74%? The Beijing group was nine times roughly more likely to show perfect pitch than the American Jesus, that's a, that's a American group. staggering difference. It's a staggering difference. And it's your hunch that the difference is because mm-hmm. they speak a tone language? That's my hunch. I mean, the, it's, it's known that in the first year of life say from age six months up to, you know, a little past a year. Infants learn features of their native language. This is a very, very important stage. Let's suppose that tone and the absolute pitch of tones is a feature which is potentially available to anyone. Babies who are exposed only to an intonation language such as English are not given the opportunity to acquire tones, then they're going to be at a real disadvantage when they come later on to learn to take music lessons. So you think that as they're... Let me ask you this. As they're learning their language, which includes inherently music to some degree, they are essentially learning two languages as they learn one. Is that right? It's a matter of fact, if you take the first tone, ma, it's a flat tone. It's really sung. Yeah. Compared with English speech, it's really more like song. That's, that's than, always been sort of the stereotype of the Chinese language is it's very sort of sing-songy. Yes. For example, the third tone in Mandarin, ma, is sort of like a J-type pattern. The second tone, which is a gentle upward gliss, ma. The fourth tone, which is a rapid downward gliss, ma. I mean, these are all kind of musical relationships. Yeah. Given the evidence on absolute pitch, one could speculate further and say, well, maybe other features of music are also enhanced for individuals who start off learning tone language. 
So, so then here's my big question. Could this explain the experience that I had, and I think a lot of people have this experience, when they're taking music lessons and playing little piddly pieces like Frere Jacques. And here are these Chinese girls, uh, right, uh, who are playing Rachmaninoff. Yeah, right. You know, they're brilliant. Uh, yeah. Is this why? Well, I, I think it's a viable hypothesis. I mean, evidently, it could be something else. There could be something else going on. Like what? I mean, one could argue that instead it might be genetic and so on. But, but that's, that's, such a, that's such a boring theory, frankly. It's a boring theory. And furthermore, we don't have to assume that knowing what we do about exposure to tone language in very early childhood as a... As oh, a it's just not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we can look at it the, another way around. Here we have a faculty that had been thought to be confined to a few rare individuals who are just extraordinarily gifted. Right. That might, in fact, be available to any individual provided they're given the right exposure at a critical period. And that raises the question of what other sorts of abilities could be brought out if we only knew just what to do. There may be much more human potential than we had realized. Diana Deutsch is a professor of music psychology at the University of San Diego. Music psychology? Music psychology. And as I mentioned earlier, she's also the releaser of two CDs. Yes. Yes, two CDs. One's called Musical Illusions and Paradoxes, Mm -hmm. and the other one is called Phantom Words and Other Curiosities. what What would she put on a CD exactly? She puts these little audio pieces that she uses in her research the stuff, I guess, that she will play to subjects as she tests them. And she puts these on CDs because they're kind of fun to listen to. This is like an ear test? or Yeah, sort of. We've actually put a couple on our website. Well, what do they sound like? Just give a little sample. All right, I'll give you some samples. Uh, there is the chromatic illusion. <laughs> kind of has a carnival feel to it. There's also the uh, cambiata illusion. Oh, the cambiata illusion. And, of course... The Phantom Word Experiments. Ah, the Phantom Word Experiments. None of those pieces are going to make any kind of sense unless you visit our website, radiolab.org.